0: Our study in the book of Philippians is called Authentic Joy. And through our study, and it's an in-depth study, we want to take time to discover where real joy is and what real joy is all about. And that connects to our teaching today at the beginning of chapter two, because the title of our study is How to Be Like Jesus, or To Be Like Jesus, Do This. And we find here three things that we are encouraged that we are given first in the first four verses and then we're given the example of how Jesus lived out each one of them and I can tell you that this is the this is the main part of how to be like Christ it is the way in which we can be like him and get it into our lives and it really helps us to understand who we are supposed to be with him in this text the Bible tells us that we're supposed to be like Jesus in a lot of different places 1st uh, John 2 6 for example says this he who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. And I've often thought, imitating Jesus, walking as Jesus walked, is like telling me to play basketball like Michael Jordan. I probably should update that to another basketball player, but that's where I, that's where I relate. I can dribble and I can shoot, but I can't play basketball like him. But I can certainly try to live my life like Christ. I can see what is Christ-like and I can choose to live it. And that's what we're talking about today in our text. Now, Paul does this in an interesting way. The first thing that he does is give us four truth statements. Four statements about the Christian life that are true. And he starts off with therefore. And usually, look at verse 1. Usually, therefore connects it to the last chapter. That's not what's happening in this this passage. The therefore here is connected to the four spiritual truths that he's going to give. Therefore, since this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true, we should live like this. And then he gives us three things, three ways in which we should live because these four truths are are there. Let's take a look at it. Verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love any fellowship of the Spirit, any uh, affection in mercy. So there's our four things. These are just true statements, truth statements. The first one is, if there's any consolation in Christ. The word consolation means encouragement. If there is any encouragement in Christ. And I got thinking about this last week. I had kind of a busy week. I ended up working a little bit on Monday and I woke up Tuesday for our staff meeting and I just felt like, I feel a little burned out now. And when you feel a little bit burned out, and this is just part of being human, we feel at times like we want to quit. We feel at times like, am I doing a good job? At times, you know, what, what are the things that I need to be doing? And am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And then all of a sudden, something will happen. And it's like Jesus encouraging you. And the next thing you know, there's a new fire again. You're no longer burnt out, but there's a new fire for what God has called you to do. I I thought of this example today when when you're on a diet and you start really cutting out everything and you're doing really good and then you stand on the scale after four or five days and you weigh more have you ever had that happen to you and you think I gave up all that good food and I weigh more and so you quit then you eat like you would normally eat maybe even a little gluttony the next day then you stand back on the scale again and you lost weight and all of a sudden you're encouraged you're like oh well it was working I just, you know, wasn't in time. And I think that that's the consolation or the encouragement of Christ. I love that when we're down, when we feel discouraged, at times when we just don't feel like we want to go on, that we get an encouragement from Jesus. If there is any consolation of Christ, if there is any comfort of love. And I think that love is comforting no matter who it is. Because the obvious question when you look at that, if any comfort of love, well, who's love? Is this any comfort of the love of Christ? Well, certainly, if we know that Jesus loves us as we are, with all of our flaws, there's comfort in that. But also, I think about when I'm just feeling love towards my wife, I feel love towards her, and I say to her, I love you. Just, it's out of the blue, it's, it's just, I, you know, I just want her to know, I love you. And that's a comforting thing to her. And the same thing for me, when someone says to me, I love you. And it's a real heartfelt thing. It's something that is encouraging to me. Is there any comfort of love? When we know that people genuinely love us and that they're on our side, there's a genuine comfort with that. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit. The Spirit here would be the Holy Spirit. Fellowship in the Spirit. The word for fellowship here is the word um, koinonia, which could also be translated partnership. So there's a partnership in the Spirit. The Bible talks about our spirit bearing witness with God's Spirit so that there's a partnership there. We are in a partnership in the work that God's called us to do. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so we are partners with the Spirit. And I love that idea of fellowshipping with the Spirit because when we use koinonia, we generally mean it here. That we've got to go beyond just attending church and make some connections and have a partnership together in, in, in that koinonia. But thinking about koinonia of the Spirit is really powerful. Because the Bible says, I think it's Galatians, I think it's 3.16, uh, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I, I love that verse because it's a positive way that you can fight against fleshly, carnal activity. You, it's not by going, "I'm not going to do that in the flesh. I'm not going to do that thing." It's by walking in the spirit. It's by partnershiping with the Spirit, the fellowship of the Spirit. The fourth truth is any affection in mercy, how God wants us to be merciful towards the people that are around us. We're reminded that the Bible says, the mercy we receive is the, the mercy we give is the mercy we receive. We're reminded. That we are to be merciful people because Jesus was merciful as well and I think that we could join in Paul here with uh, with Paul here in saying these are four truth statements these are true and so he makes the connection now fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love being of one accord and of one mind let nothing be done through selfish ambition So the first thing that Paul does is go back to something that he talked about in chapter one, which is the importance of unity within the body of Christ. And not false unity, not not where we just say, well, whatever you believe is okay. There are ecumenical movements where they try to take churches that believe everything and even cults like Mormonism, uh, some other cults, and they try to bring them together to force unity. And there's also this argument out there that the more unified we are, the more powerful we are, and I don't know that that's biblical. I can't think of anything that makes that biblical. In fact, when I look in the Old Testament, I see God calling a Moses, God calling an Abraham. It wasn't like my people are unified. I'm going to use them now because they're unified. Nevertheless, our unity is incredibly important because of our our interaction and relationship with one another so that if we know that we believe the main things and even though we might have peripheral things that are different, it's like the thing that I say all the time, anybody can be unified when they agree in everything. But when you disagree on some things and you still have unity, that's very powerful. And so Paul says, fulfill my joy. So if the church in in, uh, Philippi will have unity, then he's gonna be full of joy. Well, we know in chapter four, There's a couple of gals that are named there that are fighting in the church. And he waits till chapter 4 till he gets to it, but he's going to call them out. He calls them out in an open letter. Tell these two gals to get along. Now that's paraphrasing it, but that's what Paul does. And he wants there to be that that oneness. So fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, and being of one mind. Then he gives us the first of the three statements therefore since these things are true number one let nothing be done through selfish ambition and this one it's a big one for us right because the world lives for selfish ambition the world you go to school so you can try to become the best at what you can become at and we want to be seen and we live in the we live in the social media world where we're all working on our social media so it can be out there And I think it's good for all of us to evaluate, do I do what I do for selfish ambition? Is it possible that you could have another ambition that could go above the selfish ambition? I also want to remind you, the disciples had selfish ambition. They fought regularly about who was the greatest among them. And Jesus, it's interesting, never rebuked them. But instead said to them, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then learn to be the servant of all. Take the lowest role you can take. Humble yourself and take the lowest role and you'll be great in the kingdom of God. For in the world, the leaders lord over them, but not so in the kingdom of God. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, as pastors, we're told that we're not to lord over the flock. The world does it. But we are not supposed to do it. So selfish ambition, it's something that, I'll tell you, every time that I read this passage, I find myself checking why I do what I do. Why do I do what I do? Am I doing it for selfish ambition? Or is it a real, genuine, proper ambition for Christ? Michael W. Smith had a song, I'm going to say in the 80s. I think it was back in the 80s. We played it a few times at our resurrection celebrations, some of the first ones that we had down at the TCC. And it's called Secret Ambition. And uh, this is the, this is the bridge to the song. Nobody knew his secret ambition. See, we're not supposed to do anything out of a selfish ambition. Jesus, he's saying, had a secret ambition. Nobody knew his secret ambition. Nobody knew his claim to fame. He broke the old rules steeped in tradition he tore the holy veil away, questioning those in powerful positions, running to those who called his name, but nobody knew his secret ambition was to give his life away. That was the ambition of Christ, that he would get to the point where he would die for our sins so we could have a relationship with God. So if we're going to be like Christ, if, if we're going to... So many passages that tell us that, if we're going to do that, then we have to deal with selfish ambition. We've got to evaluate it. We've got to be honest about it. And we've got to do something about it. Find another ambition. What should our ambitions be? That God is glorified. That's a good ambition. An ambition that God would be uplifted. That people would would draw closer to Christ. That's a great ambition. That we would be the light God's called us to be. That we would be the salt that God's called us to be. That's a good ambition. That we would have the proper ambition for what we do. It's not that we shouldn't be driven But we shouldn't be driven to exalt ourselves. That's the world. We live in the selfie world. I uh, heard today that there are 93 million selfies posted around the world every day. Is that a crazy number? And I I heard it was Skip Heitzig who said it. And um, he said that there are 93 million selfies taken and posted every day. And I think this was in 2015. So it could be, a, that was when the st- his study was from. So it could be a lot more by now. Um, but I thought, no, that's not, a, that's not accurate. There were only 93 million posted. You don't post, you don't take one selfie and post it. You take like 20 selfies. And then pick the best one. Maybe doctor it up with an app or two. Right? Well, I look pretty good there. Yeah, you look better than you've ever looked. Post that puppy and you post it. That's just the world we're living in. And I'm not, again, I, it seems like I'm always dogging social media anymore, doesn't it? And I'm, I'm not really. I'm just saying we can get so caught up in ourselves that it becomes a real problem. And selfish ambition is a real problem within the church. Selfish ambition is a real problem among pastors. The Bible says that we who compare ourselves to ourselves are not wise. And I'll tell you that, that pastors do that. And it's not wise to do. And if there's selfish ambition that is connected to it, it's good to evaluate and ask why we do it. And in the weird way, like Jesus said to the disciples, learn to be a servant to all because the Bible says if you humble yourself, then he'll exalt you. If you exalt yourself, he'll hum, he'll humble you. So in a weird way, we advance by getting selfish ambition under control. And saying, I'm not doing this to be seen by anyone. I'm not doing it for any reason myself. But I really want to give my life to Christ. Now, the second thing that he says there, and it's in, the, it's in verse 3. Do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit is pride. That's what it is. And we're to do nothing out of pride. And again, I think, I think if we're honest, we all deal with it. I think you mo- we people may struggle with self-esteem Issues and problems I'm not saying that they're not real because I do think that they are real but I think the reason that we have self-esteem problems is because of pride we want something to be more or better and so we struggle with our self-esteem because that's what we want it's a love of self that causes the self-esteem problem the person that has a genuine self-esteem problem will say I hate myself but you wouldn't be upset with yourself if you didn't live up to your standards if you didn't love yourself. It's the fact that you do love yourself that you're upset with it. And so pride is a problem for everyone. And I have four things about pride that I want to look at. And I've got a few verses that I want us to read. Number one is that self-exaltation, which Jesus didn't do. He came for other people. He came to live for other people. But self-exaltation does the opposite. When you exalt yourself, you are brought down. Luke 14, 11. He who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Another verse just like it, James 4.10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. These passages are telling us that God wants us to humble ourselves and that he will lift us up for his reasons and for his purposes. I've got to believe it's not the same as selfish ambition. God's not saying this is a new way to get to selfish ambition. It's like the disciples. Learn to be a servant and you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of God. But you're going to be a servant. You won't be that lording over the people. You'll be a servant. And when you humble yourself and God exalts you, there's still a humility that is in your life. The second thing is that humility is one of those things that is required by God. Not only are we Christ-like when we are humble, Jesus... Think about who he is. One day we will see him. Probably the most, the, the favorite song for any church in the last 10 years has been, um, I Can Only Imagine, right, by Mercy Me. The idea of really seeing Jesus. And it helps us when we're singing that song to think, seeing the Lamb of God, seeing the creator of the universe, seeing Jesus, what, what will I do when I, when I see him? And I always say, I know what you're going to do. You're going to fall down on your face. That's what you're going to do. That's what we're all going to do. It's really not a mystery what's going to happen to us. But Jesus came to this earth and humbled himself and was stripped naked to do the work that God called him to do. He genuinely humbled himself. And this is required of God for us. In Micah 6, 8, it says, He has shown you, O man, What is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? To do justly means you treat people right. These three things are required. You treat people right. You don't mistreat people. That's number one. Number two, that you love mercy. That when someone does something and you have an opportunity to show them mercy, when they've hurt you or they've talked about you or they've torn you down and you have an opportunity to show them mercy we are to love that, love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Psalms 25, 9 says, The humble, he guides in justice, and the humble, he teaches his ways. Such an important truth. If you are struggling with doubts, I, first of all, if you're struggling with doubts at all, I just want you to know, welcome to the club. There's not a Christian alive, I don't believe, that has never had any doubts. And you don't have to get rid of all doubts before you believe. Do you remember the the man, I think he had a son who who was, um, I think, demon-possessed? And the disciples couldn't cast the demon out? And so when Jesus showed up, the man said to Jesus, if you can help me, would you? If you can help me? He's asking him, but he's got this if in there. And Jesus said to him, All things are possible if you believe. And do you remember the man's response? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus delivered his son. I think that's an honest position for all of us. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think there's honest positions there. But I also believe that when we humble ourselves, if you are prideful and you're searching out those doubts, then you're not going to be revealed to by God. But if you are humble... When you're searching out those doubts that's what it says here and the humble he teaches his ways if you have doubts and you want to know what the truth is then humbly approach it to find the answers to those sometimes people will ask me questions about God and there's a little bit of a, a pride to it as they do why did God kill all the all the Canaanites in the land and didn't give the land to Israel well maybe you ought to have a little different attitude towards God because God's scary and, and maybe you ought to go something like, I don't understand why God gave Israel the land and drove out and killed the Canaanites. I, 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 that, that causes me some heartburn and some trouble. I don't understand it. And by the way, if you have that problem, you're not the only one that has that problem. A lot of people have those kind of struggles. But when you begin to seek God humbly, you have a better chance of really gaining an understanding. Which is one of the benefits from being humble. So humility is something that is required by God required to discover the truth required because we walk with God The third thing is that God is on the side of the humble But he gives uh, James 4 6 says but he gives grace more grace Therefore he says God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble And another version says God is against the prideful but is on the side of the humble God is actually for you when you are humble and against you when you are prideful. That's why pride in the life of a Christian is untenable. You just can't have it. If you do, here you are a Christian, you're called by God, you've surrendered by God, you have eternity, and then God begins to be against you because of the pride that is in your life. And God will humble you, right? Pride comes before a fall. Which is... Um, Really, the fourth one here, which is pride comes before destruction. Proverbs eighteen twelve. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. And I have one more. You are never more like Satan than when you are prideful. That was the original sin, was pride. And Satan looked at God in all of his glory, looked at himself, a creation, but pretty spectacular. And said, I'm going to exalt myself above the throne of God. I'm going to be, listen, listen to what he says in Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. This is Satan. For you have said in your heart, God says to him, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like God. The Most High God. It's the same thing he said to Eve. God knows in the day you eat it, you will be like God. People today say we are God. It's the same temptation that happened to him. And so do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing at all. The third thing that he tells us is in the rest of verse 3. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself it goes on to explain this which is important for us the Bible says let no one think more of himself than he ought to so there's a real danger that we would think higher of ourselves than we should it would be better to think lower although a good balance of really knowing who we are genuinely is a strong place to be so in loneliness of mind we esteem others better than ourselves We consider people to be better than us. Not consider us to be better than them. I'm not quite sure what movie it it is, but I've seen enough of it around to know, right? I think it's Ron Burgundy from, what's the movie? Anchorman, okay. And I think there's a line. I keep on saying I think, because I'm not quite sure. I should have looked it up. But there's a line, I think that he says, "I, I don't know if you know, but I'm a pretty big deal. And I've heard Christians say things like that before. I've heard Christian, I've heard pastors say, do you know who I am? And you think those words should never come out of a pastor's mouth ever. Do you know who I am? Yeah, you're the servant, right? That's what word minister is. It's a servant. You're like a table waiter. That's what you are, right? To the body of Christ. That's the position God's given you. So we are to esteem others better than ourselves. This just means we reevaluate how we look at people and how bad it is when you look down on someone, when you consider yourself to be better than them. He gives us a little more direction when he says in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest. It's not that your interests aren't important. It's not that you would neglect your interest. You need to look out for your own interests. You need diligence. All of the things Proverbs tells us about having a a well-rounded, solid life we want to put in to our lives. Look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interests of others. And that's what Christ did when he came and gave his life for us. He put away selfish ambition. He had no selfish ambition. He didn't do anything that he did out of pride. And he put other people's interest above his own that he went to the cross and suffered. And when we do these things, these three things, we are never more like Christ. Now, certainly there's more to being like Christ than just these. But if this is all we ever master, we'll end up being a lot more like Jesus in the end than than, than we could possibly even imagine. If we say, you know what? I'm going to live 2 Thessalonians, Second Philippians. That was a few months back in Thessalonians. I'm gonna live 2 Philippians. Now, this next section that's on here, I don't wanna dive into. This is an in-depth study in the book of Philippians. So we're diving into each, you know, passage. Uh, But I wanna read it because this is the example. So what Paul did here was give us four truths and then tell us how we're supposed to live and then shows us how Jesus was like this. So that's this next section. He shows us how Jesus didn't have selfish ambition, didn't have conceit, and was putting other people's interests above his own. So he says in verse five, and I'm, I'm going to try to read this without much comment, maybe a little bit, but we'll cover it next, next Wednesday, Lord willing. This is where we'll be at. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, we'll get into that next week of the things Jesus said in his earthly ministry about him and the Father being one and about how he is subservient to the Father in the Godhead, but he is equal to the Father. So these are details we'll cover next week. And we'll talk some about deity and the interaction of the Trinity out of this passage. But in verse 7. But made himself of no reputation... How did he make sure, he did he not have selfish ambition, conceit, or put other people's interests above his own? Number one, he made himself of no reputation. We are, we are the defenders of our reputation. Now, again, this is natural. It's just natural. So I have a friend of mine who's a pastor. And and he told me that he said something about me from the pulpit. And my response to him was, I'm being slandered. Because that's not true. What you, what you said to your congregation from the pulpit is not true. I was a defender of my reputation. I was like I, I and, and he said, "Oh, he laughed, ha ha ha." And he went on, and I was like, "I don't like that," <laughs> because we want to defend our reputation, but he he but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, and which is a servant by choice. Okay, that's what a bond servant is, servant by choice, taking the form of a bond servant, and coming in the likeness of men, so. Jesus has this high status. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. But he took on the form of a bondservant. And whatever gifts you may have, whatever skills you may have, you take on the form of a bondservant. You say, Lord, I want to be able to serve people by choice. Not because I have to, but because I choose to. And coming in the likeness of men of all things, coming in the likeness of men And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and came obedient even to the point of death. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that he despised the shame, but he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He humbled himself in allowing himself to be beaten, stripped, and crucified. And even the death of the cross is what it says here at the end of verse 8 that he, he humbled himself in obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So just like when we have a promise that we humble ourselves, then we will be exalted. Jesus was in the position, humbled himself, and then God re- replaced him into that position. And we'll see that. Therefore, God also highly exalted him, giving him a name that is above every name. Well, you say, well, wasn't he the creator of the universe before that? Wasn't he part of the Godhead before that? Yeah, but he didn't have the name Jesus before that. Or Joshua or Yeshua in, in Hebrew. And so now look at this. That the name of Jesus, that's his, his, his human name. The name given to him here on earth. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth. So before Jesus came, he was worthy Of our praise he was worthy of us bowing before him he was worthy of all of the surrender that was given to him but after he came it's at the name of Jesus that that name becoming a man becoming humble it's the actual name of Jesus that God uses to get people saved there is no other name given the Bible says among men that people can be saved except the name Jesus Christ that is the name we call on. Think of Jesus humbling himself now and James telling us that demons tremble at the name of Jesus. When you speak the name that he took when he became a human, demons tremble. So God exalts him to the point, and it says, And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what a tragedy that those under the earth will bow the knee and know that he is the Savior at that point. Knowing who he is, bow the knee. So when we do those three things, we become like our example, which is Jesus, which he gives following it. May we genuinely examine and ourselves in selfish ambition, conceit and pride, and whether or not we genuinely put other people's interests above our own interests. And in, in doing so, we become like him and God is honored and blessed. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the passage that we're able to cover here today and the incredible truth that we find in it. That, that you give us encouragement that we have this fellowship with the Spirit and that you call us to put away selfish ambition, pride, and our own interests, living for our own interests alone. And forgive us when we do. Help us to really be like Christ as we take these things into our lives and endeavor to do what the Bible says and to walk as Jesus walked. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.